Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the UW Film Club podcast, where each week we invite a member of the club onto the show to talk about a movie of their choosing. Whether that movie be good, bad, topically relevant, or anything in between, it's all on the table. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Arrieta, and joining me, as always, is Cynthia. Hello. And this week we're going with a topically relevant episode. Uh, the mm-hmm. Seattle International Film Festival just wrapped up. We got we got another super packed episode. Yeah. Uh, joining me we have Jim. Hi. Ivy. Hello. And Stephanie. Hello. So uh, yeah, you guys were ones uh, see us saw most sick movies and we're like we need to bring them in do some discussions. <laughs> uh, so uh, Seattle International Film Festival this is the forty fifth year mm-hmm. went from. Uh, Thursday, May 16th, and it just wrapped up on June 9th. Yeah. It is currently June 11th. It's now, like, playing the last, like, the best of. Yeah, so we're in the best of week, so, like, we may have a few more films covered, but it's, like, it's, like, we, the screener links are open, Mm -hmm. and there's, like, like, International Falls, I started watching this morning, but Mm. didn't get a chance to finish it, but... Was everyone's impressions of the festival? Did you guys like it? Yeah. Oh, full disclosure, Jim worked for Stiff this year, so... It was was a fun experience working there. (laughs) Due process. Yeah. And then with that came, you know, we got access to the majority of the screenings with our, like, staff pass. And so I got to see quite a few films and a few I really, really liked that we'll talk about later. Ivy? Yeah, I had a great time. It was my first Sif. And I didn't see as many as I'd like, but the ones I did see were really good, so. Mm-hmm. How does it compare to Edinburgh? A lot bigger, a lot more films, so it's kind of overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, the cinemas are spread out kind of far yeah. away from each yeah. other. Yeah. So. That's, if that was like my one complaint about Sif, it's like, you can only really so... go to one a day. Yeah. Or like you go to pick one like venue Egyptian a day. Egyptian and Pacific. Like those are the only two you could like probably yeah, walk like back Yeah, like uptown so far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's yeah. some in Kirkland and yeah. Lake. From my experience at like South by Southwest, it's like you could just walk to different venues between mm-hmm. them because they're all just centrally, loca- centrally located except for like two of them. Mm-hmm. And they like specifically label them satellite venues so you know it's <laughs> pretty far away. Stephanie, what do you think? Um, it was my first film event that I had ever been to. And, like, like Ivy, I wish I had seen more films. But it, it was super cool, like, to know that there's all these people up here that are super passionate about film. Yeah, and it's, like, it's a huge festival. I think it was 235 <laughs> feature length, over 400, 400. shorts, yeah. include that. Uh, so it is, it is, like, a giant festival. We mentioned the dates earlier. Extremely long. Extremely long. Uh, speaking of long, this will be a longer podcast <laughs> because we did some interviews this year. The interviews are going to be spread out, spread within, in. Yeah. Prob. I'm looking at the interview lengths right now, and they total uh, one hour and thirteen <laughs> minutes in length. So we're probably going to split them up, make it a two-parter. Yeah. So this will be a part one. Part one. All right. How many films did everyone see this year? Or do you want to bring that up? Probably not. Wow. Disappointingly, it's not as much as I'd like to. I saw like 15. Okay. That far out does me. I only saw three. Uh-oh. Hey, me too! <laughs> mm-hmm. I saw 11. Nice. I saw 20. So, I mean... I like chugged out screeners. I did mostly screeners too. Yeah. I went to a few press screenings. Uh, 
But, like, there are some people who are, like, retirees and they have Mm -hmm. a pass holder. I saw one lady when I did my volunteer day. Um, Everyone should do a volunteer day, by the way. Then you get put on that list. Um, uh, I did my volunteer day and one lady, it was, like, the end of the festival. And she's like, I'm over 120 now. I lost count. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. This lady needs a letterbox. (laughs) (laughs) She needs to track it Yeah. A couple of people that I talk to, especially the pass holders, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm just, like, trying to get as many as I can. I was talking to someone when I was in line for, I think, Wild Rose, and she was like, yeah, this is my fourth film of the day, and I was like, Of the day? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Like, if it wasn't such a, it's, the way I compare is, like, this is, like, a marathon, so you Uh want to spread it out. South High is, like, a a sprint. Sprint, yeah. So you do do those four days, but, like, Mm -hmm. here, I was like, I did, maybe I did a double feature, and that was it. I did a double feature and got really grumpy after the second one, so. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, what was, what was your thought? Um. But yeah, it's big. It's a big festival. Uh, I think on our capsule review page, you'll see uh, on our capsule review page, we'll cover like at this point probably twenty percent of the films. We'll come yeah. at around like forty-three unique films, which I think is good. So like we spread it out evenly. Uh, we were talking about earlier in the podcast is like when we were trying to cover things in the festival, like we would avoid certain like duplications. Yeah. So, like uh, Cynthia had seen Highland. I wanted to get like more coverage. Even though it was a film I wanted to see, I did end up seeing it at the festival. Oh. But uh, we did get a lot more coverage than last year. Yeah, so. for sure. And then more interviews too. So uh, we'll just start off. We'll go around the table and say everyone's favorite yeah. film, and then we'll just go down in like reverse order. Mm-hmm. I'll probably go probably do top five, and then we will, or you know, whatever. How many you've seen, right? Yeah. Uh, and then we'll just um, work from there. Oh. Jim, you first. What, what's, your, what's your favorite film you saw at the festival? So my favorite film that I saw at the festival this year was a movie called The Art of Self-Defense, um, and it's with Jesse Eisenberg. And I think the best way I can describe this movie is it's kind of a wild satire that's like Fight Club, but if Yorgos uh, Lanthimos had made it. <laughs> and so it has all that really just like dry, um, like punchy humor that... Um, is is like it's something that like I'm really drawn to mm-hmm. and it was just it was really unique the way it was presented um, I thought it was hilarious um, really it was like a, a combination of like a dark comedy and a thriller at times and it was just very entertaining very well written I, I very much enjoyed it yeah I saw that one at South by and uh, we'll, we're actually doing like a fully dedicated podcast to that one because we did an interview with Riley Stearns uh, so you know if you want to do that one be on our podcast for that <laughs> highly recommend it uh, when I watched it it reminded me of kind of like the Doctor Strange of kind of level of humor not where it's like it's not based on like geopolitical politics or anything but it's like kind of that sense of humor where it's like one notch above our own reality right. things, but, are, things are so exaggerated yeah and the, and the things that like, people yeah. say are like okay this no one would actually say it but that's what makes it so funny yeah. it's, it's so proximate the, to our own reality i also saw it at the q a and one person asked them like was it like purposely like super literal like everything they said was like oh, I'm going to hit you now or something like that. Like, it was, he was, like, the director was saying how, like, oh, he would try to, like, everything he told the actors and actresses was just, like, make everything as literal as possible. Like, mm-hmm. that was kind of just the tone in which this film was, and I particularly enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I was I was at that Q&A, or there was two screenings, so it could have been a different one, but I was at one of the yeah. Q&As, um, and 
the director Radley Stearns was was talking about like his experience working with um, Jesse Eisenberg and like going back and looking at footage and how Jesse Eisenberg would be like like are, are you sure about this <laughs> this is like bad acting but um, I think that the finished product ended up being really funny yeah stay tuned for our full length episode for that one <laughs> uh, Ivy what's your first pick. Uh, it's hard for me to pick between two, but I'd say the one I would like tell people to go and see more would be Monos. I had had that really hyped up to me by a friend who went to the Berlin Film Festival, so I'd been waiting mm-hmm. to see it, and it lived up to my expectations. It was very intense, kind of one of those films where you're uncomfortable the whole way through, but that's the point, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, everything about it was very like visceral and like the sound was really intense and just yeah it's hard to like talk about it without going into the plot very much but um basically it's kind of like lord of the flies-esque like a group of teenagers in the wilderness and yeah things go wrong (laughs) um but it's like beautifully shot the acting is incredible like everything about it was just really really great And, and it's a neon produced one right think so yeah so it's good yeah probably <laughs> i picked it up i heard it's very visually like you need to see it like it aesthetically I like mm, i couldn't imagine seeing it on a small screen because okay. i think something That's about it was like the sound was like all encapsulating as well as the imagery mm-hmm. because you just like are transported into this like ethereal like colombian mountaintop basically and then they go down into the jungle and you're like transported there as well and it's yeah everything about it is very it it really puts the audience in the film which was really cool okay so don't watch the screener for that just check it out in theaters (laughs) i just checked the screener like six oh no damn it (laughs) let's go cynthia your favorite film i think you already know what it is uh yeah if you talk to me and like the last week or so, my favorite film that I saw at SIF was *The Farewell*, uh, directed by Wu Wang, uh, starring Aquafina. Uh, for me, this film is just like a really intimate, personal story. I've read interviews where Wu Wang was like, "Oh, I don't want it to be like this is the Chinese story. Like, I'm not trying to tell a Chinese per- like a Chinese person's story." But at the same time, for me, it was like this really personal connection that I felt with the film. And it's, like, shot really well, surprisingly, because leading up to this film, I w- I thought it's very plot, like, script-heavy, I guess. That's Reliant. how I, yeah. Plot-reliant? Pri- plot-reliant. That's what I thought it was, plot-reliant. But it really surprised me in the way she actually shot. And I'm very excited to see what else she has in yeah. store. Tell the people what it's about, because you oh. say it's very narrative Yeah, it's very narrative-reliant, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about... So Aquafina is this Chinese-American late woman in New York. She's trying to get this fellowship at Georgetown, I think. And her and her family find out that her grandma has cancer, but they refuse to tell her grandma that she has cancer. So it's like they all go back to China to, like, make up this wedding to, like, celebrate one last time with the grandma, but not tell her that she has cancer but it's kind of like a celebration slash remorseful like time to say their goodbye without saying their goodbyes Mm -hmm. and what i liked about the film is how it like positions like not only like it sets the backdrop of billy's character Mm -hmm. uh her own personal change against like 
societal change mm-hmm. and like industrial change in like China. Mm-hmm. And it talks about how like last time I was here, I don't remember it being so built up. And mm-hmm. it kind of like, I like the way it contextualizes like the personal. Rise. Yeah. Yeah. It contextualizes like a societal change within her own kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, and it was, it is probably my, it is my favorite. It's my favorite of the festival. If you don't include like what I saw at South by, mm-hmm. Uh, I think about the last three. The I last, think about the, the last, last three, three shots. I think about the last thirty minutes a lot. Yeah, it's really good. So, uh, highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephanie, your pick. Uh, my favorite was Take It or Leave It, which is an Estonian film. And what I really liked about it was when I was going into it, I sort of just thought it was going to be like a like a nice family drama. And then it wasn't. Um, it actually had like a lot of like undertones surrounding um, gender stereotypes in terms in like a family. And basically, what happens is this middle-aged-ish man finds out that he has a daughter, and the the mom doesn't want her. So he his life is like turned upside down because he has to all of a sudden start taking care of his infant daughter and then just like I didn't notice it at first but like as the movie progressed I was starting to see like all of the like implications they were putting in of how like he was being like like delegitimized as a parent and things like that and it was like it was really subtle because I totally didn't see it coming but then in the end I was I was, like, rooting for him all the way, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, when that film was, like, pitched to me, it was pitched to me as Adopt a Highway, but for, like, uh, Eastern Europe, Mm -hmm. because it's basically almost a similar kind of setting, almost a similar kind of plot. Um, And it, uh, my exposure to it was your capsule review, and I kind of want to go see it now, hopefully... (laughs) You know, the screener's still active. There's there is a screener. I don't think there was Ooh. one. She kept telling me. She was like, Rip. I was waiting I for it for a long time, and then it just, like, never showed up. And I was like, I'm just going to yeah. go downtown and see it. In that <laughs> case, the chances of me seeing that is now dwindling. Because, <laughs> like, a lot of the films they show at SIF are, like, uh, independently produced, mm-hmm. and, like, they pretty much live and die in the festival circuit. Yeah. They don't really get a full theatrical release, as opposed to something like... If you saw the New York Film Festival, mm-hmm. they have 25 main films, and then those films... Will most likely be All have a, a release somewhere. Maybe mm-hmm. not all uh, in terms of, like, maybe not Seattle, but mm-hmm. usually all, like, like, a New York and L.A. release. The first film I want to talk about is... Uh, well, first of all, I should preface this. Like, my favorite film was actually something I saw at Southlight, but it replayed here. Mm-hmm. It's, like, For Sama, mm-hmm. but... Um, Listen to the South by episode. I don't need to <laughs> speak about it again. Or the Peanut Butter Falcon, also very good. That was that late. was like a last minute ad, right? A last minute, last minute edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, very good as well. Uh, again, check out the other episode for that. Uh, but my favorite was Burning King, which is Philip Eumann's, uh directorial debut. Uh, he was 17 years old when he made it, and it's about kind of this woman in New or- New Orleans, where her like faith is tried and tested by like her her own pastor and her own son who are going through like this cyclical kind of um falling down like a a path of like sin and like uh, what's the word i'm looking for jim you saw it what's the word i'm looking for kind of like they they kind of straying from the flock they kept one's an alcoholic or they're both alcoholics right Mm -hmm. so they're both like kind of becoming more and more like difficult to like be around 
Um, and it's like the woman's kind of rec- or reckoning with both of those characters and how her faith is like tried in that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was uh, very good. It's like very, we talked about it, um, and it's very like Terrence Malicky, especially like Days of Heaven, oh, where it's really? like, it's very, it's like a meditation. Um, there's not a lot of like, strict Hollywood plot going through it's more or less the minds will give you like an antidote and you have to deduce how that relates to faith um it's a very like thought-provoking piece um so wow that's impressive yeah it was by a 17 year old or something yeah when we were so we're gonna plop an interview after this but he was very like well versed in like cinema knowledge and how he spoke Mm -hmm. about analysis and like for he's at NYU now um, and he's finished up his freshman year there, but uh, he's like very knowledgeable and like he's very humble and very like he was humble and knowledgeable of his craft. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're gonna throw in our interview with Philip right here and uh, let you guys listen to uh, the questions we have for him. So Philip, uh, briefly for the listeners at home, what what is your film about? So, uh, Burning Cane is about uh, a community um, within rural Louisiana, a southern black Protestant community. It follows a mother, her son, his son, and her pastor uh, as they sort of navigate, and especially to Mulch's point in all of their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most interesting things about you in general that you made this when you were 17 years old Um when did you start making the film from, like, scripting to shooting to post? Mm. When did you do that? So, uh, in the de- so December of 2016, when I was about 16 is when I first made uh, the short script of, uh, at that time it was called The Glory. And then, I guess in the months leading up to that, or in the months ensuing that, uh, my actual, the head of my department at the high school I went to, the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, named Isaac Webb, told me after he read that short script that he felt like the film had the potential to be expanded to a feature. The primary reasons he thought that was because of the fact that it was a film that was grounded in character and it did not in, in sort of involve any extravagant set pieces or anything that seemed like a, a very, very dominant budgetary constraint or like something that would entail something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then he said, you know, Philip, you can make this feature. And then after that, I was obsessed with that idea. I think after that meeting, actually, I went to my producer, Moe's Mayer's house. And I remember he was, it was hot. I was like swimming. It was, I remember you were in the pool and I was explaining how we were going to do this. And then he bought into it. Moe's is actually one of my producers who helped me make that whole situation happen, you know. And then so after that, it was really just about, you know, finding the money. Moe's and I started Indiegogo. I was working at a Morning Call Coffee Stand, which is a beignet place in New Orleans, saving money there. I put all of my savings into it. And throughout this whole time, in terms of raising money in the really grassroots way, I was going through strip revisions, you know, and all leading up to that summer where we shot the bulk, pretty much all of principal photography up until August. Um, and then my entire senior year was post-production. Mm-hmm. With some pickup days in between, but for the most part, it was just all post, post, post that entire year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you, you got into Tribeca, yeah, mm-hmm. and then you won the Founders Prize. How was that experience, and how was it in in the, in the wake of that success? Uh, how have you seen? How what do you see moving forward? I guess. Word. Um, so 
first off, I feel super fortunate the film is connected with people mm-hmm. in a way. You know, I, I say this often, but you never really know whether or not something is going to resonate with people. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, you know, there was no way we could have predicted the way that it would turn out for us at Tribeca. Mm-hmm. So it's just all, it's all just, I don't know, man. Tribeca was great. Everyone at Tribeca was awesome. You know, Jane, uh, De Niro, everyone I met through them. You know, I, I, I spoke to people and had conversations with people about things that I never could have dreamed of, mm-hmm. you know. And so after the success of Tribeca, it's catapulted career traject- my career trajectory in terms of, like, the prospects of my next film in a whole different sort of level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I got an agent. I had meetings with production companies that I never thought I would have. So, yeah, it's just, it's just made the prospects of my next feature real. And now it's just about me doing the work to make that mm-hmm. that follow up, you know. For your next project, what do you, what is that? You mentioned it briefly. Do you can you speak about it recently? Yeah, or yeah. Is it like yeah, no, I can I can speak about it. I can speak about it. Uh, I can give I can give you I guess the the ethos of the world that it's in. So mm-hmm. it is uh, it revolves around the young men and women who comprised the New Orleans chapter of the Black Panthers in 1970, mm-hmm. and um, I got to know all those Panthers during my uh, first during my sophomore year of high school and then I was just interviewing them even all the while making Burning Cane um, I want to pop Mose back into that because Mose was often someone who was frequenting a lot with Malik especially and visiting and Steve and um, it was just something that you know I was they were my friends at a certain point you know mm-hmm. I first when I first visited them I I was just so enamored by the idea that they were Panthers and I still have such a profound respect what they did for the community but in that and getting to know them there was so much about their vices so much about what made them people that I discovered through really sticking with them and spending that time with them that I think just further developed my interest in telling that story you know because it's, it's even it's just on a certain level of humanizing it's just there's so much possibilities with that panther story mm-hmm. you know so I'm just I'm excited about that one for sure when I watched the film um it got a lot about notions of faith and like the resilience and how you how do you stick to faith in in times of like crisis and like repeated cyclical kind of um, like setbacks I guess Um, can you speak to that theme about faith and kind of sort of where that inspiration came from well it's interesting I uh, so I I grew up in, in in the Baptist church um, going to church pretty much every Sunday, but I recognized fairly early on that I did not, I did not, my beliefs and my personal convictions did not align with the church and religion. You know, through there are a number of different factors that developed that. I think when I first sort of made that discovery, I was almost you know kind of militaristic and antagonistic against it. Uh, and I think as especially in making Burning Kane, it helped me really sort of humanize the very same people that I grew up around, you know, considering all of my ideological differences. Um, but I, I say this often, that I do not want Burning Kane to be a piece that is in any way defined by my personal differences. With religion, it's really just about the people that inhabit that community. It's just mm-hmm. about their relationships with the church. And I try to show that almost in as much of a documentary and sort of objective way as, as possible so that my own personal ideological convictions don't in any way sour one's experience in terms of humanizing them mm-hmm. and the journey that we see them in that way. I think a big thing about 
reclining on faith with Burning Cain is that it's clear that that's what Helen, the lead character, really mm-hmm. falls to during those really, really dire times, especially towards the end of the film. But with that, I think it's important to highlight that I did want to make a commentary on the dangers of, of utilizing and enacting a fundamentalist interpretation of religion. Mm-hmm. And with Helen, by the end of the film, she takes Tillman, uh, this man that we see at this point is broken, she takes his words and his guidance literally, um, and in that, she takes action from that, you know. When I was doing research for this interview, the word meditation kept coming up, and it's, it feels like a very, very, like, accurate and, like, pretty much sums up the, like, the shooting style and the structure behind the film. Um, when you were going through the scripting process, and I saw that you also did the cinematography for this as well, um, was was that kind of the nature that you wanted to be like this meditation on it rather than like this classical Hollywood mm. classical Hollywood through line where everything is like clear cut as were as opposed to like something like you're hearing the opening the opening dialogue of Helen talking about her dog right yeah um, and like if you're if you're not reading about it and like reading it reading it into like this almost like poetic sense you're not getting like if you, if you send it to like your normal viewer they're not maybe not understand the meaning behind it so mm. is that kind of the the structure you wanted to go with that's a, that's an interesting question man i i think uh you know with burning cane i i knew i knew i was not tying myself to any sort of convention i think what's also so freeing about having it be so grassroots and funded and independently in that way is that there was no one that i or anyone else in the production was really answering to in terms of any of our creative opinions or anything in that way and i think that that's what helped keep my sort of point of view with Burning Cane kind of unadulterated. Um, and with that, you know, I did not want Burning Cane to be tied to any traditional, you know, catalyst-driven scene sequence, you know, something that was following a plot structure beat for beat. The film, for me, my intention was it for it to be a portrait of that community, you know, by establishing those three key pillar characters, mm-hmm. Ellen, her son, and the troubled pastor who she has a history with, a very tumultuous history, really, in a way, but she still looks to for guidance, and that's sort of mayoral status that Baptist preachers have, you know? Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, no, and I, and I didn't want to tie myself to that in any way, so I wasn't thinking about how commercial it was going to be or anything in that way. And in truth, that's why all of this has really been so validating for me personally, too, is that I've been following my own personal creative convictions really entirely with this film, also, I want to also add an addition that, especially in post-production, I do want to really shout out all of the filmmakers and, uh, and mentors that I have that came through to all of those feedback sessions and spent time with me and gave me really, really hard, often harsh, but real feedback that I needed to hear mm-hmm. that helped really sort of test that, you know, throughout that entire post-production process. But, but yeah, no, I, I wasn't... And I also didn't... I did not want to hand the audience anything. I didn't want to underestimate the intelligence of the audience by making every single connection of everything abundantly clear. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's interesting we talk about the mange in the beginning. Like, for me, that was established as a sort of parallel to, to, to Helen's dynamic with Daniel. I don't want to, you know, divulge too deep into how those parallels were established for me because I think there's so much power and free association and not necessarily mm-hmm. directing somebody to how they should interpret my film. Mm-hmm. But, um, but no, there's, there's a lot that I wanted it to be able to be unpacked. And, and no, I, 
how commercial it was was not a, a thought really in any way. Yeah. For me, the openness really, really works in the sense that you're not given this pre-prescribed notion. And you mentioned before that you kind of want this hands-off. You're not condemning whatever, um, whatever faith they believe in. Um, and I feel like when you leave it open to the audience, it creates more of a dialogue because mm. you're opening it up to more, um, more kind of readings and interpretations to it. Um, for your for your productions uh, as a 17 year old maybe we can move Moses into this if he wants to come in feel free I know we're going to have a hey, producer on it hey, pull a chair fill up a chair I didn't have questions we can just go off of this so what was it like for you guys on production I mean, you guys did you guys go to the same call or not call? I'm in college right now. Did you guys go to the same high school? Or? Yeah. So, what was the production like for both of you? I think uh, I guess I'll, I'll bounce it, and then Moe's can take it off from there. So we like, especially with Laurel Valley, where we shot the bulk of principal. So we shot. We we were staying in like an Airbnb. It was all the cast and crew in the same house. Um, it felt like a, it felt like a like a fun boot camp. In yeah, a way. it felt like sleepaway camp. Pretty, <laughs> yeah. much. I mean, pretty much, if yeah. we're being honest, like we had yeah. like junk food. It was only like eight people. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't I mean, a lot. I mean, we had and, and it was our friends. Too. It was like, our we friends. Didn't, we too. didn't reach out to any like casting agency. It was just everyone we know. Mm-hmm. Everyone he knew just he asked who wants to help, and I mean we yeah. just came. Well, yeah. especially but with Kaya and Dominique and them. There was a slight bit of a search in those. In those with Kaye, it was different because yeah. Kaye came on because initially Kaye was supposed to cast the film, but after she read that draft of the short, she attached herself as Helen, and then I had readings with her, and she was phenomenal. And mm-hmm. so that was a bar none. Like that was a like a clear thing from the beginning. You guys had eight people working on how many days of shooting? Well, often it was. There were some days where it was, it was just me, Mose, and yeah. Ojo. Some days it was mm-hmm. just three. And then there were, but there were some days, especially the church scenes, where it involved you know extras, uh, a, a definitely a bigger sort of active set that really did require more people, and we did have more people in yeah. those days, yeah. But um, no, it was fun, man. Like it was, honestly, the best summer of my yeah, life. Definitely. This was a feature. Had you guys worked before on like a short before? Uh, yeah, I worked on a short he made sophomore year, but I was not very involved. Like I saw like. It was awesome to be there, but I wasn't in the mindset for film yet. But mm-hmm. once he came to me with, like, the glory, which what was then the glory, I just, like, threw myself at it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was like we both, I'm telling you, I, after that meeting I had with Mr. Webb, I drove over to his house, and I think we both were like, all right, we're going we're gonna to take this dive. Like, we're yeah. going to do it. Like, it, at the end of the day, at the end of the summer, we're going to have a film that we shot. So, mm-hmm. and that's what happened. Do you have any, like, uh, personal inspirations for the film like what is, what is you have any like uh, like what is your film that you like go to and say like this is kind of what set me on my path for like filmmaking mm. that's that's such an interesting question I can only say the films that I kind of appreciated in the sort of vein of the time when I was making Burning Cane but I, I have to say that there was no film or filmmakers that I can really say was any sort of direct inspiration for Burning Cane mm-hmm. or in any sort of way that I was in any way seeking to emulate any sort of style in that way. Mm-hmm. Truly. But with that, you know, 
I really love Tuki Buki, you know, mm. Dog Day Afternoon. Um, and I know some of the write-ups have said Malik, and it's interesting. I really am a friend, yeah. really a big fan of Malik. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, wow, this is so to be put on the spot is like, you know, PTA. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Wes Anderson. I think even outside of my style, I think someone who's really at the forefront of showcasing the nuance of black stories, you know, Barry Jenkins. Mm-hmm. There, there are a ton of there are a ton of filmmakers and films that I admire in that same sort of ethos of, of all of that, but none of that was really a direct inspiration for Bernie Kane at all. When you said Malik, Malik's, Malik's kind of reminds me mind with, um, I just saw Days of Heaven. Yeah. Yes! So it reminds me of that in a way. I think someone had mentioned it in one of the write-ups. I think it was yeah. in IndieWire when I was doing research. They had brought that that through that through line through mm-hmm. and it's like when you when they brought it up I was like that's it I saw a lot of parallels after having seen it so the thing about Days of Heaven what's so interesting I think Days of Heaven does an incredible job of establishing you in the place mm-hmm. like in the prairies the like, 1910s yes, I, industrial I, America yeah and I feel like that first off that's one of the most beautiful films yeah, yeah. ever like, mm-hmm. I think it's Days of Heaven in terms of just, like, beauty, and like, at least in, like, American cinema, I'd say. I had rented it on iTunes, and I was, like, I got a... I, got, I bought the Criterion Blu-ray, like, immediately after. For like, Days of Heaven? Yeah, I had to buy it. I was like, hey. I, I just had to do it, because it's so beautifully shot. And especially that the burning when they're trying to get the grasshoppers out, that oh, burning yeah. Word. scene is insane. So, Word, yeah. It's Who are so, some of your favorite filmmakers? So, for me, my favorite filmmakers currently... Oh, God. Now I'm on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, like... When when I was younger, my dad would put on like she put on he put on AMC a lot, so there'd be a lot of like old old reruns of movies. Mm-hmm. I remember you see a lot of westerns, a lot of westerns particularly, yeah, um, and a lot of war movies too. Or uh, like the one that comes to mind is my favorite. If anyone asks me what's your favorite movie of all time, it's always Facts of the Future because I think that movie has like just the most efficient script because everything plays an important role, mm-hmm. kind of opposite of what Burton Kane is in. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like the most peak, like, blockbuster Hollywood film I can imagine, and it's just so rewatchable. Like, if you put yeah. that film on any no, time... Yeah. You know what I think is... Okay, now you finish, and then I have that. Yeah, so if you put, like... If you put Back to the Future on at any point in time, I'll sit down and, like, watch it. Um, in terms of, like... That's, like, an answer I put my personal answer. If I, someone, like, asked me to do, like, a sight and sound best of the ever decade list, that answer would totally change. Yeah, 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 because... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah you know what you mean like like for you personally yeah, yeah yeah it's like what is like the repertory like right answer like this is the best film oh the yes time. yo that's so interesting okay i think for me i think the most infinitely rewatchable film of all time at least for me is goodfellas mm-hmm. yeah goodfellas is breakneck man like it's that and maybe city of god i haven't seen city of god <sighs> and then goodfellas i'm gonna lose on street cred because of AMC, it's been I've seen the censored version so many oh. times, and it's not nearly as good. It's kind of like the Big Lebowski in the sense that when oh, they yeah. put that on TV, it's always censored, and mm. whatever they redub it, it's has like this cult status because they they try to do it, they try to cover up the F word with like completely like things that don't match at all and don't make sense, and that's kind of how it came from. But Goodfellas is one of those films where like. It was ruined in a way for you? Yeah, I've just seen, I've seen like the most infamous scenes where they've all been like censored and it's been like hacked up and cut up and it's like a three hour movie so it ends up being like four and a half hours long when you put commercials in. It's not the right That's movie. a shame. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. Hey, I love talking movies all day but... Hey, hey, well, I appreciate, appreciate it, man. Thank Great you, interview. Man. Thanks for coming. We moved to Mosin so I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, nice meeting both of you. Yeah. And 
back. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Philip. Uh, I had a great time talking with him. He's a cool dude. I'm yeah. looking forward to see what he does next. I really wanted to catch it and then maybe like tag along on that interview just because I want to know. And he brought his friend Moe's with him, which was they didn't have on the 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 interview slot, mm-hmm. but he's like a producer and he helped film it. Oh. So uh, it was fun talking to him, bringing him in. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, go see Bernie Kane. Oh, and it won, it won the Founders Award at Tribeca, oh. which I'm pretty sure I oh. said in my interview, so you people probably said, <laughs> here said this, but, but yeah, definitely check it out. I'm looking forward to see what he does next. Jim, what's next on uh, your list? Um, the next, or my, I guess my next favorite movie that I saw was um, Lynch, A History, which mm. was a very unconventional documentary about the Seahawks, the former Seahawks running back, Marshawn Lynch, and his history with the media, and how all his approach um, led to this whole new um, form of nonviolent protest and how that influenced people like Colin Kaepernick and all these different really important um, African-American athletes. And it was really interesting because it was it, it was essentially, I say unconventional because it was essentially just like kind of like a newsreel because it was just it was just a compilation of all these different like um, pieces of news footage and pieces of satire about um, Marshawn Lynch and how that sort of conveys um, sort of the misunderstanding that a lot of people had about like the Black Lives Matter movement um, and a lot of stuff there that was really really interesting and really powerful mm-hmm. and it was it was a great documentary yeah does you think it like it probably do you think it gives Marshawn Lynch a new public persona because when you think of Marshawn Lynch you think of him as like this very vocal have you ever seen the him at Cal when he hijacks the the medical cart and like starts oh, driving yeah. on the field? Yeah. Every time I think of Marshawn Lynch, I think of that. Think He's just like the greatest character. And yeah. Skittles. 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 That's yeah. me. Yeah. yeah. No, Beast mode or is right. it Beast mode? Right. Beast mode. Yeah. Beast mode. Yeah. yeah. Do you think this film would like people who are not Seahawks fans or football fans yeah, would people no. respond to it? Well, oh, okay. no, 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 no. Uh, that's not where I thought you were gonna go with it. I think people definitely will. Mm-hmm. I think I, th- I think if you come in with an open mind and you're like a, yeah, because the way you describe it sounds like it adds another layer that people like people really, like myself aren't familiar with like Marshawn Lynch beyond like the headline antics that he does, right. which are like fun antics. It's not like yeah. bad antics. Um, I think because a lot of the media and especially like right wing media, you has, know why I'm here, has <laughs> severely misinterpreted who he is and like what you know he stands for and so i think the a lot of the documentary was super eye opening because mm-hmm. he's he's i mean he's a very intelligent guy and that's something that you can oh yeah he went to stanford yeah yeah <laughs> we went to cal oh he, he went to cal, cal. Well, still cal is more good as well that's yeah. right it actually said that in the <laughs> documentary i forgot but um no yeah i think it i think it really gives another layer to him that i wasn't really aware of yeah and that i'm sure a lot of people weren't being that he's like a Seattle icon, I'm sure we'll get a release here. At least yeah. Oh, yeah. At least oh, yeah. Yeah. Ivy, your second pick. So my other favorite is Crystal Spawn. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was excited about this from the very beginning when we went to the, the press launch and they, mm-hmm. they showed a little clip of the trailer. And I really wanted to see it from then. And I, I did get to see it. And yeah, so it's set in Belarus, Belarus in mm-hmm. the... 
the 90s so it's like newly independent and there's this sense of like political unrest and kind of upheaval Mm -hmm. that's kind of underlying it and it's just like so it's about this um law graduate called Velia who's also a house DJ and she wants to move to America and then things go wrong when she kind of um fudges the paperwork on her visa application and it's just a very like funny absurd kind of um I described it as like an anti-homage to Mm -hmm. like growing up in Belarus Mm -hmm. and um like not conforming because throughout she's kind of struggling to fit in but it's like a struggle that she like she just wants to leave it's not Mm -hmm. like she's trying to fit in um and yeah I just found it really enjoyable and it was also quite like poignant apart so it just kind of struck that balance between humor and poignancy that was I really enjoyed yeah so for similar reasons of like the farewell I like the backdrop and the setting um I had read your review first uh, and then I went and watched it and like having seen or I mean, like haven't been primed for that kind of backdrop and setting it really comes through especially in that DJ scene where you see like monuments to Soviet era yeah, icons you see like Lenin's like head just on a shelf and mm-hmm. like, uh, it yes. really helped <laughs> I watched it as well and it really helped that that week we were learning about post-communism film in mm-hmm. Yomi's class dude Yomi would have loved this film yeah <laughs> I wrote about it for him Yomi Yomi was at the um, Lynch screening oh, wow. in, in my row I wonder what other films you went to <laughs> be interesting to see what films you went to uh, what did you think of it Cindy I saw, I'm looking at Letterboxd here so you saw it uh, yeah I really enjoyed it as well I think the only part that kind of like struck me the wrong way was there's like one scene where she's like assaulted she's yeah. raped yeah, yeah and I, I thought that was me not I, I thought it was weird too because it was like you said like it plays it up as a comedy yeah. for like most part of the film yeah. and like it's like super serious and I'm like oh my well like I kind of had a sense that they might do that mm-hmm. because the way they played him up but um that kind of just like threw me off a little and I was like wait what yeah because as you said it's like very comedic yeah. in certain ways and there's also kind of like this lightness I feel like yeah. throughout the film and then all of a sudden it's like that bit is jarring I agree yeah, but I did enjoy it, and I think uh, the lead actress, I have her name, Alina, she's really good. Mm-hmm. She's yeah, really, really, really good. Actor. Yeah. And Ivy, you got a, a chance to sit down with the writer, Helga Landauer. Uh, how'd that go? That was super interesting. She was, uh, yeah, we, I basically just asked her a lot of questions, as you will hear, about um, like her creative process and working with the director as like a, a partnership because they've worked together in the past before and that was really interesting to learn about and then she ended up asking me a question as well about how <laughs> I related to the film which I enjoyed because I, I find myself relating to it quite a lot because I mean it's even though I can't relate to the, the context or anything is yeah it's of of a similar age to me yeah. the main character and just like wanting to get away yeah. from the place you grew up is like yeah, I think it's very relatable. But. So we're going to play that interview right now and get back to you guys shortly. Thank you so much for meeting with me. Oh, thank you. I love the film. Um, how's the festival been going for you so far? Oh, very nice. You know, people are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just uh, very in a nice atmosphere, very yeah. well organized. And um, I was pleased to see so many people yesterday at the screen. Yeah. So is this your first time at the Seattle Film Festival? In this one, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. nice. 
Um, so I was really interested in how a lot of your work prior to this film is in documentary filmmaking, and I was wondering how it was making the switch to writing for feature-length drama. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there? do you have a very different process when you're approaching a documentary rather than a feature-length? Um, so this wasn't my first okay. uh, feature uh, screenplay. I'm a professional mm-hmm. you know, screenwriter, yeah. and you know, I've been writing for other projects and this is what I do you know Um, you know it's just I met uh, Daria through you know the director of the film Um, she was actually producer on several of my films before that Uh, and uh, so she's younger and now she when she decided to pursue her um, career as a director I was uh, um, you know I was very supportive and you know and pleased that she uh, asked me to write her first no full-length feature film. Yeah. Um, so, but that wasn't my first no, uh, no. project. The process, feature versus documentary. Do you find working up to that very different? If, if it comes to you know writing, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of course, you no, know, it's very different. Yeah. You know, I find that. Um, you know, s- sometimes people, you know, when they make documentaries, they make, you know, they mistakenly think that, you know, if they have a subject, that, you know, they would just film whatever, you know, f- kind of w- whatever fits that subject, yeah. and then they would figure out how to structure it, mm-hmm. and it never works. No. <laughs> you know, you have to have a screenplay, yeah. even if you deviate from it. Um, or even if you change it, or if you come across the character, you know, or somebody who would reveal, you know, all different parts of that uh, theme or that subject, and, and would, you know, you would eventually change it. But if you have a, you know, a sketch or a plan or a screenplay in mind, then your material can be edited in many different ways. But it has some kind of coherence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you um, if you don't have a screenplay at all, uh, then you know, the material just doesn't fit together. You always find that, you know, you should have filmed that and you don't have enough of that. And it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't come um, together. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you have to have some sort of a film vision anyhow um, or an idea of a structure. With the feature, you know, you have much more, you know, like it's a different thing because you, you write it, you know, like you can, of course, change dialogues or... Um, you know, change certain rhythmical, you know, things or accents during um, during the production, but it's much more uh, streamlined, you know, and uh, it's much more developed um, as something already, you know, it's it's you know, it has a different level of precision, of course, and um, uh, you pretty much uh, just you know realize what you envision first. So you said you'd worked with Daria before. How was it working together to create this screenplay? Who I know that you're the screenwriter, but did you work together collaboratively on the story? Mm-hmm. Or was it more you wrote something, sent it to her? How was the working together? Mm, well, when you... Um, it was initially her, you know, uh, her... Um, idea to you know to write it you know based on the situation of a phone call Mm -hmm. um, which was a true story you know that happened to a friend of hers Um, so kind of like the 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 initial sort of bone uh, uh, you know came from her Mm -hmm. Um, however um, uh, when when you write a screenplay for a director you always 
uh, work together yes. on a screenplay. So, you know, you write a draft, you know, you send it, you know, she comments, we not talk it over, you know, we think about, you know, what we need to add or take away, you know, from the scenes. But it wasn't it wasn't uh, just like a joint, you know, joint writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, more in the realm of, of of the collaboration that usually happens when you know when you write a screenplay for somebody, and and, and the screenplay is always for the film, you know, for this yeah. director. It's not like I envision something and mm-hmm. you know she tries to yeah. <laughs> make it work. Yeah. So how did you conceive of the character of Velia, the central character? Was that something that you based from a, a conversation you had with Daria, or was that how did that character come about? Um, I, you know, I also lived, you know, I was about Velia's age, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 1990s when I was leaving Russia. You know, I didn't live in Belarus, I lived mm-hmm. in Moscow. Um, and uh, so I went through, you know, a number of things myself. Um, being, you know, being a young woman <laughs> out of college, you know, trying to uh, trying to adjust myself, you know, into this completely changed uh, social and economic and 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 you know personal in, you know um, environment mm-hmm. around me. Uh, Daria had a different experience um, in Belarus, and she was younger when you know when she uh, lived there. So, but. And so I was trying to uh, sort of create uh, a character that would be more, that, you know, would be kind of you know, more connected to her experience. Somebody that, you know, something that is based on, you know, her memories or her affiliations. You know, she was working as a DJ mm-hmm. um, and, you know, she was involved, you know, with different music um, of that time, and she, you know, she knows it well. This is not my realm. So I was, <clears throat> I was trying to kind of incorporate to some mm-hmm. degree my experience, but but you know, mainly um, make the character that would you know speak to her yeah. as a as a director. So it it was kind of like a hybrid <laughs> between uh, you know between Daria and I. Yeah, and I noticed that there was a sense of. Kind of latent political unrest within the story, mm-hmm. and do you think that's um, symptomatic of that period of time in Belarus in the nineties? Of course, you know, same thing. You know, in uh, it was uh, a time of uh, of this immense, you know, uh, sudden freedom and also restraint that came with the change of uh, uh, change of society, mm-hmm. um, which was, you know, equally or um, you know, in different ways, uh, similar between you know former Soviet republics. Uh, so we decided, you know, from the beginning, um, that uh, this is this should be the film about freedom, and about different uh, margins of this freedom and how people deal with it. You know, personal freedom, uh, and you know, social, and um, how all of this you know works in in every character that we uh, create. Um, so I was more of uh, I was more for um, you know the stronger you know political under underline here and we had some episodes in the beginning of the film uh, and at the end of the film that um, I suggested you know that would would 
um, take that message, you know, further. Um, but you know, she decided. Uh, she, she decided that you know, like, the, to make the film in this uh, form, and it's her film. And um, so, at the end of the day, I think um, it still reads, but just you know, maybe doesn't come in that many. Yeah. Um, episodes. Yeah, I definitely got that sense of like an underlying political tension and the struggle to break away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also wondering what stories are interesting you now, and um, what stories do you plan on telling in the future? Are there any particular things that you're interested in writing about, or is it more that you're you work with directors and you both come up with the ideas together, or is there something that you're planning on working on in the future? Well, I always, uh, you know, I'm really fortunate that you know so far <laughs> in my life and career, I'm working on projects that uh, I'm very deeply interested in, mm-hmm. and I choose, you know, the subjects. Um, that uh, that would help me uh, or take me further and you know thinking about things that you know deeply matter to me mm-hmm. um, and um, although you know there's very different um, forms of 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 that um, work you know when I write a screenplay it's more um, collaboration and it's you know I'm uh, I, I think that uh, at the end of the day though the film is a director's statement you know not the screenwriter's mm-hmm. statement. Um, but right now I'm <clears throat> I've written um, during this year in you know, one uh, one synopsis that is also taking place in 1990s and uh, um, I wrote a, a feature um, a screenplay for the uh, for the whole you know 20th century you know historical drama um, and right now I'm uh, developing. Um, the film that uh, based on the screenplay uh, that I wrote uh, uh, that is also taking place in 1990s which I will be shooting myself as a director and the, you know like this was a very important time for me mm-hmm. and um, I find that there's so much to be explored uh, during that time and um, uh, so personally and historically this is a, you know this is the, the you know this period a transitional period for the country and for me personally is, is something that I really is excited to uh, to explore. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to see your what will you come up with next. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. I, I really enjoyed the the film and it, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Do you find no? Can I just ask you one question? Yeah, of course. Do you, like do do you find any points of you know connection with this? Mm, uh, with this, with Lyra character, uh, yeah. because it's a very different, um, uh, co- you know, it's a different country, yeah. different times. So I'm, I'm, you know, really curious how it, you know, how she can be perceived by you know, young person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though I can't relate to the the cultural context, I still identified with this young woman who has all of these dreams and there's things holding her back, but she's nevertheless trying her best to kind of pursue what she wants to do and yeah I really related to Velia in that sense even though there were so many other things that I could never relate to but yeah I found it like a very engaging story I don't think it's only just because she's a young woman of a similar age mm-hmm. to me I feel like just a, the, the experience of a young person in general with these kind of restraints but yet all of these mm-hmm. aspirations yeah. mm-hmm.
No, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. I hope the rest of the festival goes well for you. Oh, thank you. And we're back. That was a great interview. Yeah. Uh, you can read the full thing on our site. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think it went really well. Yeah, I enjoyed speaking to her a lot. I like when the interviewers turn the tables on you. Because yeah. <laughs> then they're actually paying attention and they're yeah. actually engaged and it feels good. And it feels, yeah. yeah, it feels more like a dialogue. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they went really well. Cynthia, your film. Next one. Uh, my next favorite is displayed in many places, and I'm surprised it came here, but uh, Three Faces, directed by Jafar Panahi. I think I pronounced that right. I have no idea. Um, the reason why I was interested in this film is because um, Yomi had mentioned him, but then I like read about him, and like he has a very contentious relationship with the Iranian government where like he's not allowed to film films. Mm-hmm. And he's like under like a 20-year ban of filming films and like a six-year country arrest like he's not allowed to leave Iran and so like the ways he gets his films out of the country are very interesting there was one where he it's like this it's his film I think this is not a film that's what he titled it and he had to like smuggle it out through a cake to get it to play (laughs) at Cannes wow um so I was just interested by this film because of that and I think what I've noticed about Panahi's work because I watched White Balloon like a week ago, is he's very simplistic in his film style. This this film is just like him driving with, oh frick, I forgot the lead actress's name. Benaz Jafari, another like famous Iranian actress. And it's him and her just driving to this really small town where there's a girl who like created a suicide video. And the actress feels really, like, guilty about the suicide because in the suicide video, she, like, blames it on the actress for not, like, being able to help her out. And mm-hmm. so that they, uh, the actress and Panahi go on, like, a road trip to this small town to, like, understand what might have happened. And it's really, really, really simple, but I think there's a lot of good dialogue and, like, it's not his most political film, but there's still, like, some nuances of, like, the politics and, like, repression, creative repression and female repression in Iran going on in there. And I thought that was very interesting. hmm Definitely wanted to check out. Um, yeah. I had requested a screener and I just let it expire because you covered it. Oh. <laughs> it's still active. I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah. Stephanie, your second pick. My second pick is Baby, which is a film about the sexism and ableism in China. And I think like The Farewell, this one was also really narrative heavy. Like it was already about something like a pretty good substance. And it was, I think, well done because it was very, it wasn't like over the top straight from the start. Like... There was a lot of nice buildup that I felt was appropriate. And then also um, what really did it for me in the film was that... um, So basically there's... The main character is a disabled woman who is working in a hospital and she overhears a father of a newborn baby say that he's going to let the newborn baby who was born... Who is a girl and was born with some defects, he's going to let her die in the hospital because one-child policy, and they don't want her. And so she goes on this huge um, adventure, for lack of a better term, where she takes the baby and tries to save it. Um, 
And what, what really did it for me was that there's a point in the film where they almost play a lens of, I guess, how do I say this? They almost portray the father in like a compassionate light, like a sympathetic light. And at first I was like, well, that's dumb. He did a bad thing. But then I realized I, I think it was, uh, it was a sign that it wasn't just him. It was like the society like, it wasn't he was the evil person. It was, like, the society, the society and the way of thinking had caused him to do this. And, like, that was that extra layer of complexity was what really did it for me in that movie. Two for two on films with babies in it, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, sounds interesting. Uh, my second pick, just to, like, space out the interview so it's not completely overwhelmed, uh, is uh, The Dead Don't Die, which is Jim Jarmusch's mm-hmm. new film. Uh, it's, it's, it comes out in a week, so it's like, yeah. um, it's not, it's like, super, uh, uh-huh. you'll be able to see it probably, it's gonna be in theaters when you guys listen to this, or when it's released, and it's, like, this replication of, like, 1950s, 1960s zombie B-movie horror tropes, mm-hmm. and it plays itself, like, very seriously, um, people who, um, know Jim Jarmusch, he's done things, like, Patterson more mm-hmm. recently, uh, he did, um, Dead Man, and then he also did Broken Flowers, mm-hmm. which is a Bill Murray uh, film. And it's so interesting to see him go down like this genre pathway with mm-hmm. all these big-name stars attached oh, yeah. to it. Um, it plays itself very literal. Like, the mm-hmm. meaning behind the film is not, like, okay. Yeah. It's, it's, like, all about, like, the world being off its axis. Mm-hmm. And, like, that because the world's off its axis, then, like, zombies and everything start changing like the days become longer and then like zombies start rioting out of the grave um it's very like on the nose with what it wants to say but i feel like that kind of plays into like the literal Mm b-movie inspirations that he's doing because he's done patterson patterson's like this very it's a it's basically a poem yeah and um he's like i feel like he's too good to be like making it like that poorly done mm-hmm. like it's i think yeah, it's very it's much very intentional yeah. yeah you have a lot of great moments in there um it's really funny uh sometimes self-referential mm-hmm. and i i'd recommend everyone checking out because jim jarmusch makes a lot of great films yeah i'm so excited to see this uh coffee and cigarettes one of my favorite films so mm-hmm. and a thing jarmusch is exciting yeah, i was going through his filmography the other day and there's this film called ghost dog the way of the samurai forrest whitaker Hmm. It's rated pretty highly. It's got three seven on Letterbox. So I mean, the title alone is selling me on it. So uh, I'm definitely check. I uh, Jim Jarmusch is one of those uh, directors who's like filmography I'm severely lacking in. Same, same. But um, I've seen a few of his more prominent films. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a good pick. I'm glad they added it. Last minute. Yeah, not last, last minute. minute. Yeah. Last minute. <laughs> um, Jim, you have another one you want to talk about? Um, sure. Um, I'm, like, a little hesitant to, to, to say it's, like, one of my favorites, but, um, because it's just not an easy watch for anyone. For, oh, I think um, I, know I, think I know where we're going. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not something that I recommend to a lot of people, to be t- totally honest with you, mm-hmm. just because of how graphic everything is. I want to talk about The Nightingale, which is Jennifer Kent's second film. She directed The Babadook. Um, Babadook, Babadook, doesn't matter. 
Um, Gay icon Babadook. Yeah. Yeah. Pride Month. Have you guys seen? The, sorry, I didn't mean to kick off. Have you seen the um, the re-release they're doing with like the pr- gay pride flag? No. Um, are you serious? Oh yeah, it's so it's great. So people who don't know um, the story behind the Babadook is that it was inside of um, the LGBTQ section on Netflix for like a whole month mm. <laughs> and it became like a meme that like Babadook was a gay icon so for for Pride Month this year they're doing a re-release of the Babadook Blu-ray but with like the pride flag in the background and just the Babadook's like silhouette it's, that's, it's that's great. pretty amazing <laughs> um but yes continue I've, I've got to buy that now um so the plot of the Babadook is is pretty simple it's um it's in the Tasmanian the, the Nightingale you said the, bomb, the plot of the Babadook is... Oh. Sorry. You okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> so Ooh. the plot of the Babadook is... Oh my god, I did it again. <laughs> there it is, look at it. Look at that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Gay icon Babadook. The plot of the Nightingale. <laughs> there we go. Third time's the charm. Is... It's, it's pretty simple. It's... Um, Set in Australia in eight in the early eighteen hundreds, um, and it's essentially this young woman who um, is like a is like an ex convict, and she's trying to like work off her debt. Um, she's like working for this guy. He, he like won't let her go, and then it eventually um, results in a very hard to watch scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. a very graphic yeah. act of violence. Yes, and then the rest of the film is just her. Um, just setting off for revenge mm-hmm. against this guy who's terrible and just like it was so hard to watch for so much of it but it, you just felt so much for um, the lead actress that I found it like really I found that aspect really compelling um, mm-hmm. and just all the acting like all around was just really great mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's like a very hard watch, but it's like a very um, I guess not. I don't. It's like a very it condemns colonialism and like violence against women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's like its main target. And like to go and like address those kind of topics and like present the horrors of them. I feel like Jennifer Kent wanted to be as like visceral and not hold it mm-hmm. back and just mm-hmm. present the reality of these these two. Um, Situate the two themes and issues mm-hmm. uh, with a more, I guess, blunt approach yeah. where she yeah. want to say this is how it is. It's very fucked up, and we need to address it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my I I I would recommend people see it. I'd recommend the first honest. hour and a half. Yeah, and but then, it drags. It drags. So it's an hour thirty six, yeah. and I think it is. It's two, a two. two yeah. It's an hour thirty. It's a hundred and thirty six minutes. Yeah. What did I say? Hour it's an hour and thirty six. Nice. Uh, I wish it was an hour thirty six. <laughs> yes. Um. It is. It, there's when, when there's a moment where she's on the pursuit and then she enters the bush and then it starts dragging mm-hmm. and it keeps almost doing a redundancy. Mm-hmm. Uh. But like the first hour and a half is is yeah really good. So I, I would just be warned, like we've already talked about it, but like be like very on your guard when a specific scene kind of happens, just so you're not like. It's in the first twenty. Minutes. Yeah, it's in the yeah. first twenty minutes. That's how it was framed for me. Yeah. Uh, like the we were at, I was at a screening for it, uh, like the early screening for it, and they were like, "Yeah, if you make through the first twenty minutes, you'll be okay." Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Also, um, <laughs> I thought this line kind of like 
summarizes not summarizes it but like reasons why I think people should go see it like the person who introduced the film the one of the programmers said like Jennifer Kent said that this film was like an act of love it's like a story of love and through that lens I would say if you see it through that lens I think it might be okay it won't be as disturbing <laughs> Mm-hmm. in a way I don't know at least for me yeah I feel like, I don't feel like the violence is unwarranted oh yeah I don't because of the so issue either. she's trying to address and yeah. how bad they are mm-hmm. um, my issue is just it's very sh- long yeah so check it out <laughs> but make sure you're I feel I'm not sure if I want to that makes me scared but yeah someone make- like framed it as a horror film for me so when I came out I was like wow that's very different I mean that's what I was I, I went in knowing next to nothing about it, um, and they gave that warning before the screening, but I, I totally expected, given it was Jen- Jennifer Kent, um, and she did The Babadook, that it would be more of a horror movie, and it's just really not. It's not a horror movie. I mean, it's horrific, it's but it's horrific. not a horror yeah. movie. It's like reality. The horror comes in the fact that this is stuff that happened. Yeah. yeah. Cin- uh, Cynthia, your next pick. My next pick, I feel like you talked about this in the South by one. I'm not sure, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I running with Beto? Uh, we probably talked about okay. it, but okay. we can talk about it here. I, well, I can just say I really liked it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess then Honeyland. Honeyland, um, Sundance, yeah. Honeyland, Darling. Sundance, Darling, yeah. It won the Doc Award, Doc right? Award for it. Um, it's beautiful. This film is gorgeous beyond belief i think its visual storytelling is it's so hard to describe like how you talked about monos it's like very hard to like describe what is going on without seeing it yourself but like for the lack of a better word it's like gorgeous and surreal in a way and what's interesting about this doc it's not very structured at all it feels like a slice of life film because Reading about it, it was like the directors like spent three years with this one woman who's a like the last bee hunter in the world. I don't. Yeah, she was a beekeeper, but I guess she kill the bees. No, she doesn't. She she's like in bounty hunter. (laughs) (laughs) Just kills the bees. No, um, she's like she's very environmentally conscious actually. She like does this thing where she like takes half of the honey for the bees and leaves the rest of them for them to like do whatever bees do with the honey. I'm not quite sure what they do. Yeah, but school they always teach us, like, they make the honey and then we take it. Yeah. I don't, I don't recall her being... They probably use it to eat. I don't know. I but don't know. she says she... Or they, she takes half of the honey and then leaves the half for the bees, which is, like, something that many beekeepers do not do. And that's why, like, bees are, like, slowly dying. But, like, her bees are, like, strong and healthy. And, um, <laughs> and it's in the Mediterranean, right? Yes, it's in the Mediterranean, which I don't... Unless, like, I'm so unaware about the Mediterranean, but, like, I'm not very familiar with honey culture there. Or, like, I don't think they're well known for it. But anyway, it's, like, just a really, like, interesting slice-of-life film of this bee hunter and, like, all the hard work that she does within the massive, like, within her craft and, like, what she does to, like, keep herself alive. And she also has, like, a really cute mom and helping her, like stay alive as well and all the challenges she has to face that come outside like from the outside of her world and come crashing in and it's really heartbreaking at the end i must say oh yeah well, hope it's gonna get a seattle release I it's neon picked it up so we'll definitely play it mm-hmm. we'll see. 
Stephanie, the other one? Uh, the other film I watched was Long Time No See, and this was one that I wanted to see because, like, Ivy, it's from my home country of Taiwan, and, um, I thought it was, like, it was a well-made, like, independent film. Like, what I really enjoyed about coming to this festival was I'm starting to be able to really appreciate and tell the difference between like huge blockbuster films and then like films you can tell were made like on a smaller scale with like maybe like a smaller budget with more creativity involved and that was really great um basically it's about the indigenous Tao people on the Orchid Island near Taiwan and um how like globalization and colonialism has sort of affected them and how um, these people just have sort of like a very varying identity of like what home is for them. And um, the main characters are a boy whose father has gone to mainland Taiwan and just left behind his culture to make money. And then there's a teacher who came from Taiwan to the island, so it's like a parallel of people going to places where they don't belong. And so I really appreciated that. Like, it was very gently done, and it was very nice. Um, The first, like, 20, 30, maybe 30 minutes were a bit slow. I was definitely, like, when I finished it, I was like, I don't, I think you could have cut off, like, the beginning, like, 20, 20-ish so minutes, and it would still be fine. But... Um, it was a, it was, I'm glad I watched it. It was great to see something like that from, like, my country and everything. And it was, it was pretty sentimental, too. Won a special jury prize this year for uh, the SIF Awards, which is, like, second place, right? Yeah, I think so. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, This is where we're going to cut it off here and do the break. Yeah. Uh, Tune in next week. We'll, or next week we'll have our second half of our podcast. Find us on Facebook at UW Film Club, Instagram and Twitter at Film Club UW. Post podcasts every Monday at eight AM on SoundCloud, I Apple Podcasts. Yeah. No, no longer iTunes. Well, rip. no, it's not happening until like September. So rip prematurely rip. Yeah, so. prematurely rip. Uh, Google Play and Spotify. You can use our Amazon Smile link. Uh, HelloFresh. Me undies. Blue Apron, uh, Movement Watches, Loot Crate, Barkbox. You all should just record you guys saying all of them and then just <laughs> add that on to the podcast. That's spontaneity. He always brings some new ones, too. Yeah, I always forget. Uh, but yeah, tune in next week for the second half of this episode, or this two-parter for SIF. It's, it's too, many, too many films talking about it. Yeah. Uh, mostly due in part because we have interviews we got to put in here. <laughs> but see you guys next week. Bye.